Well, we are just about at the finish line for our summer series in the Psalms. Um, And I've personally really appreciated how these sermons have helped push us into the text of the Psalms. One of um, many comments um, from our wonderful series of preachers we've had that has stuck with me was Canon Stephen Gauthier's casual remark where he compared sometimes reading the Psalms to listening to Muzak, you know, where the words of the Psalms uh, can all kind of smerge together in this happy sound, vaguely pleasant background noise. Um, so personally, I often need help in digging into Scripture. And one of the tools that helps me dig is to pay attention to how scripture is put together, like the actual words and phrases and images, how they all are are placed carefully together. And the Psalms in particular are poems, mostly meant to be sung. And that means that the writers gave extra attention to sounds and syllables and rhythm and repetition and how all of that can enhance the beauty and the meaning of these poems. Now, most of us cannot read these poems in their original language in Hebrew, um, which means that some of that extra special care is a little bit lost to us. But happily, even in translation, the structure of this beautiful Hebrew poetry, the pattern, the way things are ordered, is still there for us to help us dig into what's there for us. And this morning, Psalm uses a common pattern called chiasm, where a sequence of ideas is presented and then repeated in reverse order. It's sort of like A, B, C, B, A. And what this pattern does is tells us which thoughts or images the poet is asking us to pay special attention to. In chiasm, the juiciest, most important stuff is alone in the center of the psalm. So you can think of chiastic structure like a butterfly, where the center of the butterfly, the meat of the butter, the crunchy meat of the butterfly, the body of the insect where its little tiny butterfly brain and little tiny butterfly heart are kept, that's the central idea. And from the center, the wings fan out on either side as mirror images of each other. For example, we can see right away that the wingtips of Psalm 149 are praise the Lord. In Hebrew, that's hallelujah. So the first and last words of the psalm are exactly the same. We begin and we end with praise the Lord. The second thought from the beginning speaks about singing the Lord's praise in the assembly of the godly, while the second thought from the end is This is honor for all his godly ones. So it's not an identical thought this time, but there's a repetition of those key words. So tracing all these little details can be fun. But what I really love about Psalm 149 is the bold invitation that it makes to us. Psalm 149 is an invitation for the godly to exult in glory by responding to the glorious attitudes and actions of the Lord with glorious attitudes and actions of our own. At the core of Psalm 149, at the living body of our metaphorical butterfly, is a very simple and beautiful revelation about our Lord. And the wings of the butterfly call out the various ways 
that those who know the Lord respond to that revelation in our thoughts, words, and deeds. So we're going to begin with the first wing. Verse 1 begins, Praise the Lord. Sing to the Lord a new song, his praise in the assembly of the godly. Then verse 2 invites the assembly of the godly to sing a new song. Or verse 1. Hear this invitation in the Psalms to sing a new song. You know to start looking for what specifically the psalmist wants you to sing about. So here at the beginning, we already get a teaser for the middle. And even though we don't yet know the content of the new song, the inspiration for it that we're going to sing, the psalmist indicates that there are attitudes and actions that he predicts are going to be appropriate for us to adopt in response. Apparently, it's going to be good news. Verses 2 and 3, let Israel be glad in his maker. Let the children of Zion rejoice in their king. Let them praise his name with dancing, making melody to him with tambourine and lyre. There is a celebration at hand. The godly will praise, sing, be glad, rejoice, dance, make melody. Our emotions, our attitudes will be engaged in an outpouring of gratitude, gladness, and joy. And even more than that, these interior postures will find expression through sound and movement, song and dance. So whatever we're about to find out about the Lord, it's going to invoke a full body expression of praise. The exhortation from the Psalms is not merely a call to give glory to God silently in our thoughts, though that is good. There is a call to use both our voices and our bodies. In Hebrew culture, as in all ancient cultures, dance was a significant part of communal celebration. The writers of the Psalms understood song and dance to be a good and natural part of praise, a good way to celebrate a good God. But this is much less intuitive in our times, isn't it? Dancing and even singing is something we largely leave to professionals and to hobbyists. You could dance at a club or in an exercise class, but the only vestigial remains of dance as part of communal celebration is maybe at a wedding reception. We are just not culturally equipped to sing and dance as an expression of joy. Most of us feel pretty inhibited about singing and dancing in public, even in the assembly of godly, in the presence of a God who deserves all our praise. And in fact, even in church, or sometimes even especially in church, people can get pretty judgy about movement. Now, I come from a church background where there was not much bodily engagement in worship. We praise the Lord heartily through song while sitting or standing still, holding a hymnal in our hands. It was really rare even to see someone um, even so much as like rotate their wrists to sort of lift their palms to the Lord. When I moved away from home, I went to a school where there were many Christians of many different backgrounds mixing together, and that was my first exposure to how judgmental church people can be about movement and worship. 
in both directions. We criticize people for moving too much in worship, and we criticize people for not moving enough in worship. We've even developed this specialized language to kind of mock each other. Are you a holy roller? Are you part of the frozen chosen? So some of my most intense experiences of public worship have been spent sitting silently, communing deeply with the Lord, kind of oblivious to anything happening around me. And I've learned that some people interpret that as cold-hearted indifference to the Lord. Some of my most intense worship experiences have been spent swaying and clapping my hands, stomping my feet, maybe even bouncing around the room a little bit. And I've learned that some people interpret that as disrespectful exhibitionism. It is a good thing that worship is something that is directed toward the Lord to please him. It is not a performance to satisfy our neighbors. When we look at scripture to see what pleases the Lord in worship, what seems to be most important is that we match our outward physical expressions to inward spiritual realities as we respond to what the Lord is doing in a given moment. So fasting and weeping will accompany the Spirit's move to repentance. Silence may accompany awe. And singing and dancing are the overflow of gladness and joy. So it is not necessary for us to prescribe in detail what worship ought to look like. I find it highly inappropriate for church leaders to scold or manipulate congregations into big displays of emotion. But somewhere in our lives, our joyful praise needs to find expression beyond our thoughts and even beyond our words and take shape in some kind of joyful movement. Could be small, could be large, but true worship must extend through all aspects of our life and all aspects of our being, including our bodily posture. This can be done privately, but a natural place for it is also in corporate worship. The context for this call to praise is explicitly in the assembly of the godly. God's people together offering their bodies not in performance for the satisfaction of others, but as a living sacrifice to the Lord. And we can all grow in our willingness and our ability to respond wholeheartedly, unreservedly, unselfconsciously, as we focus on the goodness of the Lord, as he graciously reveals himself to us. And now we come in this psalm to that great reveal. Verse is the pulsing center of Psalm 149. And what specifically do we hear about the Lord? The Lord takes pleasure in his people. He adorns the humble with salvation. Look at that again. The Lord takes pleasure in his people. That is the attitude of the Lord that the, palm, the psalmist relates. He adorns the humble with salvation, and that's the action that the Lord has taken. The Lord takes 
pleasure in his people. That is a very evocative and personal statement. There's almost nothing we can add to that. Other translations render this, the Lord delights in his people. It is an expression of uncritical satisfaction. That is an enormous step beyond saying that the Lord tolerates you or the Lord accepts you. It's even a step uh, added to beyond saying that the Lord loves you. His love at all times is the bedrock of our lives. But the Lord not only loves us, he delights in his people. He takes pleasure in his people. Let's take a moment to just let that sink in. If you're willing, you don't have to, but if you're willing, you can place your hands over your heart. And in a second, I'm just going to repeat those words of truth. We belong to the Lord. He takes pleasure in us. I'm going to say that a few times, and if you'd like to, you can just quietly join in with me. We belong to the Lord. He takes pleasure in us. We belong to the Lord. He takes pleasure in us. We belong to the Lord. He takes pleasure in us. Thank you for joining me in that. We're going to do something a little similar with the second half of verse 4. The Lord's attitude is one of delight in his people. And the action he takes is to adorn the humble with salvation. Now, obviously, there is no end to the theological implications of the statement. We could look all throughout Scripture and talk for days or years about the whys and wherefores of how the Lord has adorned the humble with his salvation. But I do believe at this particular scriptural moment in this text, the psalmist is inviting us to a personal and corporate response of worship. Now, study of scripture absolutely can and should lead to worship, always. But I think the simplicity, the poetic simplicity of this revelation would be better served this morning by contemplation. So we're going to continue on in that spirit of contemplation. I collected about 25 different English translations of the second half of verse 4, and I actually eliminated all the exact duplicates. There's still a whole bunch left. And I want to just read out to you this same glorious truth expressed in just slightly different words each time. So you can take a breath. You can close your eyes or keep them open. Whatever helps you to attend to the reality of what the Lord has done. The Lord takes pleasure in his people and he crowns the humble with victory. He adorns the humble with salvation. He adorns the afflicted with salvation. He will beautify the meek with salvation. He will beautify the humble with salvation.
He will glorify the lowly with salvation. He will beautify the afflicted ones with salvation. He will exalt the meek with salvation. He gives victory to those who are humble. He will exalt the meek unto salvation. He honors the humble with victory. He beautifies the afflicted with salvation. He beautifies the humble with salvation. He honors the poor with victory. He exalts the oppressed by delivering them. He adorns the humble with victory. He crowns the humble with salvation. He adorns the oppressed with salvation. All right. That is the heart of this psalm, the center of the butterfly, the middle of the chiasm. And now that we have contemplated the attitudes and the actions of the Lord, the psalmist has more to say about the effect that these realities about our Lord can have in our responses, in our lives. I'm going to read the remaining verses all together, beginning at verse 5. Let the godly exult in glory. Let them sing for joy on their beds. Let the high praises of God be in their throats and two-edged swords in their hands to execute vengeance on the nations and punishments on the peoples, to bind their kings with chains and their nobles with fetters of iron, to execute on them the judgment written. This is honor for all his godly ones. Praise the Lord. So, at first glance, the second butterfly wing does not seem to mirror the first one very completely. It starts out, okay, uh, the godly exults and sing for joy on their beds with the praises of God in their throats. But then things take a startling turn at verse 6. How do we get from singing and dancing to handling swords and chains and executing judgment and punishment? In fact, the first part of the psalm describes how godly people respond to the goodness of the Lord. And the second part of the psalm also describes how godly people respond to the goodness of the Lord in the first half of the psalm, the godly respond to the goodness of the Lord through praise that results in song and dance. And here in the second half, the godly respond to the goodness of the Lord through praise that results in justice and in judgment. When the Lord adorns the humble with salvation, this mighty act revolutionizes things. 
The goodness of the Lord does not just affect the emotions of a niche group of holy people locked away in houses of worship. When the afflicted and the meek and the poor are crowned with victory and deliverance, the whole world is turned inside out. The restoration of justice to an unjust world is something people have longed for throughout the ages. And the first readers of these psalms were no different. In fact, way back at the beginning of the book of Psalms, where chapters 1 and 2 set up the context for the whole book of Psalms, we find these words. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and their rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against the anointed Messiah. The psalmist describes a world where kings, nobles, and peoples do not often share God's pleasure in people. They do not share God's desire to honor the poor, the humble, the meek, the lowly. Frequently, the peoples and the rulers of this earth commit atrocities against one another and against God's intended order for this earth against the humanity that he delights in and longs to gather in as his own. The problem described in the second chapter of the Psalms is addressed in this second to last chapter of the Psalms. Now, the first readers of these Psalms might have longed for justice like we do, but they did not have the opportunity to know God incarnate and fully revealed in the person of Jesus Christ as those who came after Christ have had. They had not received, for example, Jesus' teaching on the Sermon on the Mount. And it makes sense then that we might have questions about this psalm that the early readers did not have. For example, how do we reconcile this call to vengeance and judgment here in the psalms with the teachings of Jesus, where he calls us, quite clearly to forgive our enemies and to do good to those who harm us? This is a really important question. Some folks find these questions so stressful that they get tempted to kind of sidestep the questions by simply just discounting, disregarding even the scriptures of the Old Testament and calling them outdated and irrelevant. Um, Some are even tempted to assume that Jesus is a later and more highly evolved version of God, the God that we meet in the Old Testament, one that better reflects our more nuanced and sophisticated modern sensibilities. But that sort of division does not work. The same scriptures that teach us of the kindness, the humility, and forgiveness of Jesus, those are the same scriptures that teach us that Jesus knew himself to be in complete unity with the Father. That he, Jesus, did only what he saw his Father in heaven doing. That he and the Father are, in fact, one. It is the teaching of the New Testament that in the Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. So wherever we perceive dissonance between the Father and the Son, the 
character of God revealed in the Old Testament and the New Testament. That is our cue to simply press more deeply into the unity that Jesus insists is there. We can have great confidence that Jesus knows his Father far better than we do, and also that he came to reveal his Father more fully to us. So as we enter the world of the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, it is a culture that is foreign to us in many ways. And much of our confusion often has to do with a superficial understanding of the language used. For example, if we were to have a conversation with a psalmist about vengeance, he might quote Inigo Montoya in The Princess Bride and say, you keep using that word, vengeance. I do not think it means what you think it means. To you and me, vengeance means roughly the same thing as revenge, an instinctive, anger-fueled retaliation for personal harm done to us. But to the psalmist, vengeance was a legitimate path to justice and even equity. The Old Testament affirmation of the ancient saying, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, wasn't really giving me permission to stab out your eye because you stabbed out my eye. It was an acknowledgement that God, the Lord of all, is not a respecter of persons. So if a rich man, in carelessness or anger, puts out the eye of a poor man, the family of the poor man, in cool-headed sobriety, has the backing of the Jewish community, the people of God, to see that the rich man lost his eye also. We live in a world disordered by sin and injustice. A good God does not let evil go unchecked forever. Those who persist in raging against God, enacting the will of Satan to kill and steal and destroy, will be stopped. Justice will be served. Praise the Lord. And because that is the case, it is the honor of the godly to join the Lord in works of justice. Now, even if you see that joining the Lord in his works of justice is honorable work, you might still wonder if the best way to go about it is to take up swords and start punishing people with it. Again, where we are most confused by Scripture, we take most seriously the idea that Scripture interprets Scripture. And we look at the whole testimony of Scripture for understanding. There is actually some pretty clear teaching about the types of weapons the Lord provides for his people, and some pretty clear instructions on who exactly we are to fight. I love what 19th century pastor Charles Spurgeon has to say here. He says, if you had a sword of steel, you would fight with men, but that is no part of your business. You are not called to that cruel work, but as you have the sword of the Spirit, go forth and praise God by the use of that two-edged sword, which is the word of God. When the apostle Peter took up a sword to try to prevent the death of Jesus, which was the worst injustice this world has ever seen, Jesus 
rebuked him and told him to put it away. And Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not of this world. In the book of Revelation, chapter 19, we see a white horse whose rider judges and makes war in righteousness. In his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down nations. And this rider is given several names. He is called Faithful and True. He is called King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And he is called the Word of God. We learn in the book of Hebrews that the word of the Lord is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and marrow, discerning the hearts and the intentions, discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And of course, the letter to the Ephesians compels us to take up the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And that same letter also tells us that we do not fight against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly realms. So in this whole book of Psalms, in the whole testimony of Scripture, there is a theme here. The horrible tools that we humans manufacture to destroy human bodies or impose our will on our fellows, they are not the same weapons that serve justice and serve the Lord of justice. Not only are the weapons fashioned by human hands gory, they're also of short effect in bringing about the justice of the Lord. The weapons that are fit for the service of God and his anointed are weapons that are themselves purely good and purely just, fashioned not by man, but by the Lord himself. And as we receive that glorious reality from the Lord, the weapons that we find are for our use, are embodied prayer, embodied praise, embodied proclamation of the word of God. These weapons are truly powerful and have eternal repercussions. They bring about permanent, eternal change as the Lord brings his kingdom. Jesus perfectly embodied the word of God. He is literally the word of God incarnate, the word made flesh. And his whole life, everything he did was a song of praise to his father. His joyful obedience single-handedly brought down the reign of Satan and evil in the world without striking a single blow. As you and I humble ourselves before the Lord to be crowned with his salvation, we too 
can embody the word of God in our lives. As he adorns us with salvation, we too can take up the praises of the Lord on our lips. And as the expressions of praise fill our hearts and our minds, the praise of the Lord will animate even our bodies. We will move about in the world in a new way as we sing a new song to the Lord. And the Lord in that way will bring forth his perfect justice through the praises of his people. So let the godly exult in glory. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah.